0: Welcome to the Heartbeat Church Podcast. Our vision is for people to live in the image God intended them to be in. For more information, visit heartbeatchurch.org.au. And a rather unusual one. Hailstones from heaven, the sun and the moon stopping in the sky. What is going on? And just to recap where we are, we are in the book of Joshua. And Joshua traces the history of the Israelites entering into the promised land and fulfilling the promises of Yahweh that Abraham's descendants would possess the land of Canaan. Now, Joshua falls within the big grand meta-narrative in Scripture called The Former Prophets, which is a four-part story which concludes Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And Joshua tells us about the people entering into the Promised Land. And the end of Kings tells us the story of the Israelites exiting the Promised Land because of their wickedness. At this moment, Joshua is all about the Israelites fulfilling the role that Yahweh promised to them. But remaining in the land is not guaranteed, for the Israelites must remain obedient to the Torah of Yahweh. And part of this obedience is engaging in battle with the inhabitants of the land. The Israelites are ordered to subject the Canaanites to Horem or to ritual destruction. And when something is devoted to harem, it means it either belongs to God to be consecrated to Him or to be destroyed. And while the concept of Joshua's violence makes us as contemporary readers feel uncomfortable, harem's purpose is to reveal Yahweh's justice against evil and um, against evil and sinfulness. And by subjecting the land to Harem, Israel is removing a wicked blight upon the earth. And to prevent the Canaanite practices from spreading. Now as readers of Joshua, we have to have this question in the back of our minds whenever we are reading this narrative. Is Israel strong enough and Courageous enough. That's what Yahweh told Joshua. He was to be as a to be strong and courageous. We must always ask ourselves: Is Israel strong enough and courageous enough to be obedient to Yahweh? As we have seen in some of the narratives, such as the destruction of Jericho, the crossing of the Jordan, or the oath made with Rahab. Yes, the Israelites can be obedient. Sometimes. But last time we looked in Joshua and the the quite violent demise of Achan and the loss at Ai, these wites sometimes can't be strong enough or courageous enough to follow God's commands. Now, when we come to Joshua chapter 9 to 12, this recounts all these violent conquests that the Israelites engaged with the remaining Canaanite nations. This is the question we must ask Is Israel going to be obedient? And in turn, there reforms another question Will Yahweh go into battle? with the Israelites. Now in order to understand Joshua chapter 10 and hailstones falling out from the heavens and the sun and the moon stopping in the sky, we need to actually go back one chapter, actually two chapters really, back to Joshua chapter 8. And in Joshua chapter 8, there's this rather random account that's told for us, where Joshua gathers all the people in front of two mountains, Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, and there he rewrites the Torah on some stones, and there he reads it out for the entire assembly of the Israelites, men, women, and children. And the significance of doing this before all the battles is to remind the Israelites, this is exactly what you have to do in order to receive Yahweh's blessing. But it's also a reminder that Yahweh himself will go out and fight their battles. And immediately after we have this covenant renewal where the Israelites dedicate themselves to Yahweh once more, we are told this information from Joshua chapter 9. Verse 1. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perzitzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. The reports of Israel's success has spread across the nations. And rather than the Canaanite nations being fearful of the Israelites, they decide to band together as one to wipe out Israel. Now as readers, we are expecting to be given this grand, glorious account of Yahweh's victory over these nations. But there is a but... In verse 3, we're told, while all these other nations are forming an alliance, there's one people group that decides to do something different. The Gibeonites, who hear what Joshua has done, and they decide to act with cunning. And they grab all these old provisions, old clothes, old shoes, old bread, old wineskins, And they pretend that they are from a distant country and they want to make a covenant with Joshua. And let's pretend for a moment that we are Israelites, reading this account for the first time. That we should be familiar with the laws of the Torah. And in particular, there are two very important commands at this moment that would be coming to our minds. Deuteronomy chapter 7, which gave the commands that you were not to make a covenant or an alliance with any of these nations. And the second commandment was that you could make an alliance or a covenant with nations who were outside the land. Now as readers, we know the Gibeonites are really the Hivites and they should be destroyed. And while the hardest part for us as modern readers, they understand why would God allow the destruction of a nation. Actually, for Joshua, the hardest part of this text is the fact that the Gibeonites are not destroyed. And despite questioning the validity of their story, the, the um, Israelites make a covenant with Gibeon. And here is the fundamental problem with this narrative. They do not ask Yahweh for direction. They do not seek his inquiry. They do not seek his understanding in this matter. Now in biblical narrative, whenever a person makes a decision based on their physical senses alone, whether touch, feeling or emotion, whatever it may be, if they make a decision based on their insight alone, we know the outcome will be negative let we really know what's happened with Achan and his sin, which led to the Israelites having to stone him and his family. Now we are learning the Israelites are making this covenant with this nation, which is forbidden. Now, admittedly, the Gibeonites were shrewd and deceptive with the Israelites, but their deception could have been unmasked had the Israelites bothered to inquire of Yahweh, and the Torah it made numerous provisions for how one was to communicate with Yahweh to reveal His will. Whether they ask the high priest to cast lot, whether they pray in front of the tabernacle, the altar, or whether they someone just has prophetic insight from heaven, have all of these options, and the Israelites rely on their physical senses alone. And eventually the truth comes to light. And the Israelites are furious for now they have made an agreement with a nation that needs to be destroyed. And Joshua summons the Gibeonites and asks, why have you deceived us? And while the question is right, the implication of this is that the Israelites deserve to be deceived for they failed to inquire of Yahweh. And the motivations for the Gibeonites' deception is self-preservation. And this is the tragedy of the text. And this is the danger the Israelites put themselves under. They now must permit a Canaanite group that was meant to be destroyed to live. And now they have deliberately disobeyed the commands from the book of Deuteronomy. What is going to happen to the Israelites. How's Joshua going to fix this situation? Will Israel now become destroyed themselves? Well, Joshua's solution is shrewd. He merges the commands of Horem, which is to dedicate something to Yahweh, either for destruction or consecration. And he makes the provisions that the Torah set out to make peace with nations from outside the land. And in the Gibeonites are placed under a curse. Not a curse of death, but a curse of servants. They are to become permanently, permanently amongst Israel woodcutters and water drawers for the house of God. And ironically, it is a curse that gives them life. Now all of that background is needed for when we approach Joshua 10 and this crazy battle with the sun and the moon stopping in the sky, with hailstones coming down from the heavens. For when we open up Joshua 10, there's tension over the narrative. Is Yahweh still angry with Israel? In Joshua 9, Yahweh has not spoken a word. We have no idea what his reaction is going to be to this treaty. Will it be like the first battle at Ai where the Israelites are completely routed and defeated? Or will Yahweh uphold the covenant with the Gibeonites, though it was expressly forbidden? And in Joshua chapter 10, we're told immediately straight away that Adonai Zedek, he is about what has happened with this treaty at Gibeon. And he is greatly afraid and for good reason. For Gibeon is a powerful, mighty city and their warriors are mighty men. Israel now has an even greater advantage for they have made an ally with a powerful nation and they also have a strong foothold in the land. And we have to remember in Joshua chapter 9 verse 1 we're told all the nations have gathered together and now we see these nations coming together now attacking Gibeon. And the Gibeonites now send a message to Joshua for help for their request Is also, for their attack, is also a challenge against the Israelites. Now, what is going to happen when the Israelites march into battle? Will Yahweh be with the Israelites or not? And upon receiving the news, Joshua immediately gathers his troops and they go on a gruelling all night 35-kilometre march from Gilgal, where their camp is, all the way to Gibeon, which is uphill all the way. And we still don't know, has Yahweh blessed the Israelites? And then we get these words here from chapter 10, verse 8. Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Despite the wickedness of the despite not inquiring of Yahweh for what they're going to do, Yahweh has honoured this treaty with the Gibeonites. They are now part of his people and God is going to go into battle against his enemies. What this narrative is subtly telling us says God uses human failure for his glory. These lights had not started, had not created this treaty at Gibeon. These five nations wouldn't have gathered together to attack this place. And Yahweh will use it to reveal his power to the Canaanites. This is the largest battle these lights have had to face so far, this is the combined might of five kingdoms from the southern part of the region. And as Joshua and his men emerge from their all night march, Yahweh throws them into a state of panic and they flee before Israel. And as they are fleeing, Yahweh throws down large hailstones from heaven. And we're given a detailed description of how the army flees. And while the locations of Beth, Hol, Ran, and Azkath, and Makidah don't mean a whole lot to us, what it is saying is that for 30 kilometres, Yahweh is hurling these hailstones at this army. Keep that picture in mind. This is an utter, utter destruction. They absolutely annihilate This army. But not only that, the Israelites have already marched 35 kilometers at night. Now they march another 30 kilometers in chasing down their enemy. And during this day, the true miracle happens where Joshua says these words Sun stands still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And we're told the sun stands still. And the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on its enemies. Now naturally, this little verse has caused a wave of controversy. What does this mean? The traditional Jewish and Christian understanding is that God literally stopped the sun and moon in the sky. That God somehow stopped the rotation of the earth and made the day longer in order for Joshua to defeat his enemies. Others see this as maybe it was just a meteor shower that made more light so Joshua could fight. Or maybe it was a solar eclipse. Or maybe it was an ancient Near Eastern omen where the sun and the moon appearing in the sky was seen as bad luck. But what's interesting is the narrator, for him, the true miracles not the sun and the moon stopping in the sky. It's the fact that Yahweh listens to a man and that he fights for Israel. See, Joshua's request for cosmic intervention into battle while daring is not unique. For those that know their Torah, the plagues against Egypt is Yahweh enacting warfare against the Egyptians. And in that, Yahweh did tremendous signs and wonders in the heaven. What is unique? That so Yahweh didn't just simply hear Joshua's request; he actually obeyed the commands of Joshua. It seems at this moment, Joshua takes on the role of the divine warrior. He actually dictates to Yahweh the divine, the his battle strategy. That is the amazing feat of the day. And in the Hebrew language, the construction of this sentence is the most common way to express obedience. And remember Joshua, he lives as Moses' successor. He lives under the shadow of the great Moses, the one who delivered the Torah to the Israelites. Now Joshua may have made some mistakes, but at this moment, Joshua has surpassed Moses in his ability to lead, Joshua does something that even the great Moses was not able to do. Command Yahweh in battle. And while Joshua is honoured at this moment, the true hero of all biblical stories is God. In fact, this day is so unique. The narrator tells us that, if you don't believe this account in my book of Joshua then check out the book of Jassar, literally the book of Righteous, some mysterious extra-biblical book that we no longer have available to us. But the point is, this day is so unique. When Yahweh listens to a man, it's not just recounted once in the Bible. You can read about it elsewhere. What's interesting about this battle with the sun and the moon is that if you translate Joshua's prayer directly, he doesn't actually speak to Yahweh. He literally addresses the sun and the moon. That worship of the sun and the moon, this is a normal thing that the Canaanites would do. But something the Israelites never, ever practice in fact, referring to the sun and the moon is almost like this forbidden thing. For in the creation account, the sun and the moon are not even named. They are just described as the greater and the lesser lights. The Bible goes out of its way to de-divinifies the sun and the moon. They have no divinity about them. By, express, by addressing the sun and the moon, Joshua is indirectly addressing Yahweh. But what he is also doing is highlighting the failure of the Canaanite gods. If the Canaanites worship the sun and the moon, Joshua in essence is saying, hey, look what Yahweh can do. I can address the sun and the moon and these gods will do Yahweh's bidding. However, it happened, whether it be the halting of the earth's rotation, or whether the sun and the moon actually stopped in the sky, the point is these celestial bodies were part of Israel's battle for Yahweh. Now, if the Canaanites worshiped the sun and the moon, then they also were highly suspicious of different signs in the heaven. And one of them at the sign of the new moon was that if the sun and the moon were together for a few minutes before um, sunrise at the new moon phase, on the 14th day of the month, they saw it as a good omen. The point is Joshua is now tapping in to their fear of omens and good luck and saying look at what my god can do he can move the cosmos itself to get victory but the source of the victory is not necessarily the sun and the moon halting in the sky it's the hailstones that come down from the heaven Now, stones have played a significant role in the book of Joshua. They act as memorials for great signs or events that have transpired. For instance, the stone memorial that is placed when the Israelites cross the Jordan, the stone memorial of Achan's demise, the stones that were used by Joshua to rewrite the entire Torah, and later on, the stones that are used to cover the five kings who were decimated. The point of these hailstones is to signify this memorial or sign for Israel. If Joshua's request for the sun and the moon to cease in the sky was an attack on Canaanite worship, then the hailstones are another sign. For the the Canaanites, primary god was Baal, the storm god. And as the storm god, Baal's weapon was lightning, thunder, clouds, wind, and hail. Joshua is saying to the Canaanites around him, my God can control every element of your gods. And we see this at the crossing of the Jordan River. Baal was the God who provided fertility and the flooded plains of the Jordan. Yahweh just parts the rivers The Israelites cross into Baal's territory unimpeded. The point of all this, Yahweh fights for Israel, even though Israel does not deserve to have Yahweh fighting for them. The Gibeonite Treaty was a direct violation of the laws of the Torah, but God uses that for his glory. For if the Gibeonites had not deceptively formed their treaty, it would not have caused the five southern kingdoms to lay siege against her and expose themselves to the hailstones of Yahweh's might. And following this great victory, the five kings flee into a cave and there they hide for the remainder of the day. And Joshua rather graphically drags these kings out out, puts his foot on their neck and tells those around them, be strong and courageous before wiping them out. Then he hangs their bodies on a tree for the remainder of the day before throwing their bodies back into a cave and sealing their tomb with a stone. As the sun goes down on this remarkable day, that tombstone is a reminder what God has done for Israel at this moment. So for us as Christians, what can we draw from Joshua chapter 10 for our lives? Or Joshua chapter 9 for that matter? Well, obviously we see in Joshua 9 the foolishness of making decisions without inquiring of God We also see that, that relying on our physical senses alone is not enough. We must be praying to God, or otherwise, we will make foolish decisions that have lifelong consequences. In Joshua 10, we can learn that if we have faith, then we can ask God to do r- miraculous things in our lives. But these are secondary applications to the true purpose of the narrative. The true purpose for us to learn is that obedience to Yahweh's Torah leads to blessing. It also teaches us that the ability to be obedient to Yahweh's Torah is dependent upon the one who is leading us. Now despite their deception the Gibeonites become part of Israel and are saved. And it's through being obedient to the Torah that we that one can experience the salvation Yahweh offers. See for us friends we are now part of the new Israel. We no longer follow the laws of the Torah and its commands we follow the law of the new covenant as revealed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But in reading these battle accounts, we also remind of which side do I want to be on? As part of being on Israel's side, you see Yahweh fighting for you in battle when you're not. You see the consequences that arise. And part of being on God's side is that we need a strong leader. And though human and full of weaknesses, Joshua is the leader who is strong enough and courageous enough to lead the people. So much so, he's able to do a feat that even surpasses the great Moses. And with Joshua in charge, we know Israel will be fine, that nothing will go wrong. But we know... At the end of Joshua, things spiral down, down, down till we get to the end of Kings and the people are ejected from the land. The Joshua foreshadows the type of leader that the people of God need. We don't need Yeshua 1.0. We need Yeshua 2.0, Jesus Christ. Who, despite never picking up a sword or leading his troops into his men into battle, he embodied what it meant for Israel's leader to be obedient. But he also places his enemies under his feet as he defeats them sin and death. And he is the leader who ensures that we can remain obedient to the commands of. Of God, For he has given us the means that we can know how to follow him, the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit of our future salvation. The feats that were performed on that day, where the sun and the moon fought against the Canaanites, where hailstones came out of the heavens, where kings were placed on a pole and thrown into a, st- into a tomb, which was covered by a stone also point to events of a day like no other, where the true Yeshua was hung on a pole, where the cosmic signs pointed to the wrath and judgment poured upon him, where it seemed as though the very hailstones from heaven itself were assaulting him as he hung on the cross. But as the second Joshua hung upon that Tree, his feet were raised over his enemy. And as he crushed the head of the true enemy of humanity, the great evil serpent, and all the evil that he represents, we see in Jesus the victory of God's people. Which side do you want to be on? And if stones function as a memorial for Yahweh's dramatic actions in the book of Joshua, then for Christians, the greatest memorial for us is the stone that has been rolled away. Let me pray for us, friends. Lord, we thank you for your word. At times, it is complex and confusing. And the events on that day of battle with Joshua, we don't fully understand what you did at that moment. Lord we know what you've done through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and it is in him that we find salvation it is him that the first Joshua was pointing to and so Lord we thank you for the salvation that we have in him that Lord that when we are on your side that we will be victorious so it's in your name we pray amen thank you for listening to the heartbeat church podcast For more information about services, ministries and sermons visit heartbeatchurch.org.au.